Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." Second reading is Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 9, on page 969 in the Church Bibles. So, Hebrews 3, beginning at first verse. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our Apostle and High Priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was a faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all mo th those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Question. 
what kind of bear is best? Fat. Bears eat beets. Bears, beets, Battlestar Galactica. You may have no idea what I am talking about. And if you don't, you have not watched the show The Office. <laughs> Dwight Schrute and Jim Halpert are co-workers who are constantly trying to outdo each other. And they have an ongoing feud of one-upmanship, which started out with Jim hiding Dwight's stapler in a bowl of jelly to paying everyone in the office $5 to call Dwight Dwayne all day, um, to moving his entire desk into the men's bathroom, to hilariously impersonating each other. And as Dwight says, identity theft is not a joke, Jim. Millions of families suffer every year. As hard as Dwight tries to outplay Jim, Jim is the mastermind prankster. I wonder if you have a friendly or maybe unfriendly co-worker rivalry or maybe a sibling rivalry. It's everywhere. Politicians try to outdo one another. Networks and companies rival each other. Sports fans argue about who is the GOAT, which is greatest of all time. Good, I'm glad you know. Whether we realise it or not, we spend our days comparing ourselves with each other. We compare jobs, we compare our education, we compare houses, we compare clothes, we compare bodies. And we even compare when it comes to religion. But what happens when the grass looks greener on the other side? It's so annoying when you buy something and you walk out happy thinking about how great this little piece of technology is that you have in your hands and then you see it being sold cheaper somewhere else or the next model comes out and suddenly it's not quite so exciting. Well, you may have started out like that with Christianity. You may have been really excited about your faith, first when you became a Christian, perhaps when you were younger and more enthusiastic, but the enthusiasm has worn off now and it seems a little naive or foolish to you now. And you keep going through the motions of being a Christian, but the inconveniences bother you more now than what they did in the beginning. It gets in the way of other things that you'd rather be doing. It takes up too much time and involves too many sacrifices. And when you look around at church, more and more, you only see the things you don't like and that make you annoyed. And you may look at your friends who don't have any religion and, to be honest, their lives look fulfilled and happy and simpler than yours. As we'd seen, the audience to the book of the Hebrews were doing their own comparisons. They too were looking at what they were told about Jesus and comparing that with what their Jewish buddies had. Is Jesus worth it? Is he actually better? Well, let's see what the argument is about from a Middle Eastern Jewish perspective. And then we're going to think about what it might look like for us. So, briefly, in chapter 3, we have a comparison between Jesus and Moses. Now, Moses is an absolute legend in the eyes of the Jews. The most important figure 
in Judaism, the goat besides God. He is the only prophet to speak directly with God. He led the people out of Egypt. He received the law. He wrote the Torah. He knew God face to face. And Deuteronomy 34 verse 10 says that there was no other prophet prophet like Moses. In some Jewish Christian sectors, sectors, uh, Jesus was seen as a second Moses. And just like Moses, the writer of the Hebrews says Jesus was faithful. Verse 2, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. God commissioned both Moses and Jesus to do a job, and they were both faithful in carrying it out to completion. So the way that they carried out their job was the same. They were both faithful. But their job and position, the writer says, is different. And therefore, Jesus is worthy of greater honour than Moses. That's what he says in verse 3. So what's the difference? Verses 5 and 6. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. Do you see the difference? Moses is faithful as a servant in God's house. Jesus is faithful as the son over God's house. One is a cool job where he gets to work in God's house. It's kind of like an actor who gets to pretend that they're a superhero or a king or a queen. But then once the performance is done and they've taken off the outfit and the special effects are all removed, then they have to go home. Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't work there. It's his entirely. It belongs to him and he is over it because of who he is. He's the son. It's who he is, not something he does temporarily. The author says that just like the builder of the house is more important than the house itself because the builder expresses their talent through making the house, whereas the house reflects the talent of the builder. So Jesus is superior to both. The house, which the author says in verse 6, is a symbol of God's people, and he's superior to the servant who faithfully cared for his house, for his people. And the author also lists off a couple of other titles for Jesus that he will unpack later, such as the apostle and high priest. Interestingly enough, Moses knew exactly who was greater. He prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that God would raise up a prophet greater than he. You must listen to him, Moses said. And when Jesus went up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, just after Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus told them that he must suffer and be killed and on the third day rise again, Jesus transfigured in front of them all. His face shone, his clothes were dazzling white, and Moses and Elijah appeared with him. And God's voice said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah, who both represent the law and the prophets, and who both met God on a mountain, they're very important Old Testament figures. But as we heard in Hebrews chapter 1, 
Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And he comes to fulfill both the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He is not on par with them. He is unique and without equal. As Joseph Ratzinger observed, Jesus shines from within. Unlike Moses in Exodus 34, he does not simply receive light, but he himself is light from light. Jesus is light from light. We can get attracted to the light of others today, not realising that it is borrowed light. We might be attracted to the non-religious spiritual who talk about love and peace and without any rules or judgment. There's a lot that this has going for it until you notice that actually the light is pretty dim and that they're so self-consumed with their, so their self-actualization and little community that they neglect matters of justice and action. We can get attracted to the light of doing good works, thinking that if we have influence in these realms for our political or social cause or making a difference at work, that that will fulfill us. But we so easily become superior and virtue signaling and abandon our ethics and denigrate others to push our agenda through. And the light that we chased once fades and wanes. We get attracted to comfort, sleeping in on a Sunday, keeping a barrier up with our church family so that they never see the real you. We seek compromise and easy answers. And when issues are complex, it's easy to pick a side and to stay with that rather than working through the nuances and walk away from a faith that is just too hard to reconcile with what everyone else is saying. There is a light that in so many places entices us, but it is borrowed light. Jesus shines from within. He is light from light, the source of all light. And the more we look at him, the more we will see that everything that we've been searching for, everything we've been searching for is found in him. And everywhere and everything else leads us into the wilderness. In the early years of white colonial settlement, the bush was thick and there were no neighbours nearby and children very easily wandered away and got lost. In 1999, Peter Pierce wrote a book called The Country of Lost Children and Australian Anxiety. He talks about the mystique and fear that the Australian bush held over European settlers, as depicted in Frederick McCubbin's Lost Paintings where you see a little child is lost and alone and they're surrounded by dense bushland. It's the same sort of idea as in Picnic at Hanging Rock where some young schoolgirls vanish without a trace. Or in real life stories of the Beaumont siblings, Azaria Chamberlain and more recently William Tyrrell. In the past we feared being lost in the endless scrub or in the Australian desert. These days, however, we are more likely to get lost in a plethora of information, 
this gamut of data overload, which can be overwhelming and we can lose a clear path forward. The continual consumption of digital content, news and opinions, the constant distractions and interruptions mean that we're so inundated and influenced by the loudest voices online that it's hard to know what we think on our own. Society's views have shifted so quickly, driven by identity politics, it's hard to separate what is true from what seems good. The wilderness is not so literal these days as metaphorical. And even though things may have sped up in recent times, this problem of getting caught and enticed away from God is as old as human civilization. We see this in chapter 3. The writer illustrates this by quoting a psalm, Psalm 95, which Ben read to us earlier, which is referring back to an event in Israel's history from Exodus 17 and Numbers 14, where the people of God grumbled against God and wished to go back to Egypt. And because of their rebellion, God decreed that not one of them would see the land that God had promised them. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until each one of them died outside the promised land. What led to their rebellion? Had they not seen God's greatness? Yes. They had seen God provide for them out of nothing time and time again. Had they not known God's love? Well, on the contrary, they had recognised that God heard their cry and he acted to redeem them. They had plenty of evidence of God's reality and power and love. So what was the problem? Where does this unbelief and apathy towards God come from? Well, we see that the problem was their hearts. That's what the passage tells us. The innermost part of ourselves that so easily goes astray. Verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Verse 10. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. Verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Our hearts become hard and callous towards God's loving voice, and we turn astray and turn away from the living God, surrendering to unbelief. And the writer is saying, don't let history repeat itself. Don't you be like the wilderness people of the past. Well, we have such a tendency to think, I would never do that. When we read the stories about the Israelites tested and rebelling, or the disciples' disbelief, it's so easy to think, they were so dumb, I would never do that. And we watch movies, when we watch movies about injustice or war or sacrifice, it's so easy to think, we would be the ones who were the whistleblower, the martyr, the hero, rather than the coward, the denier, and the villain. 
But Hebrews 3 warns us that we are not immune from sin's deceit. Just as Peter swore that he would never leave or disown Jesus so many more times than three times do we deny and betray our Lord. Hannah Arndt was a 20th century political philosopher and a Holocaust survivor. And in the 1960s, she investigated Adolf Eichmann's trial and she was struck with how ordinary and bland he was. Terribly and terrifyingly normal, she said. Arndt coined the phrase, the banality of evil, to describe how seemingly ordinary people can commit such horrific crimes by simply following orders and not questioning them. In Arndt's opinion, going along with the rest and wanting to say we were quite enough to make the greatest of all crimes possible. Don't let history repeat itself. Don't be like the wilderness people of the past. We must learn from our ancestors. So what is the solution? In what can we place our hope? How can we persevere in trusting in Christ? Well, we see that the solution rests in two things, sharing and holding. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Verse 13, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ. Dear friends, our confidence is not in ourselves to persevere. It is confidence in Christ Jesus. We share in the riches of Christ, in being found in Christ, in sharing in his inheritance, in sharing the fruits of his perfect life, and his substitution on the cross, where he takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. The Jewish believers had Moses, and he was faithful to a point, but even he was not permitted to enter the promised land because of his sin, and he died in Moab. But we have Christ. He was faithful in every way. His heart never turned from his father. He always trusted him. He was faithful to the end. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that he could redeem us and make us holy. So we remember what it is that we share. We share in what Christ has done for us. And we place our confidence not in our faithfulness, but in his. And you know, I think as an aside, it's really helpful to learn from the book of Hebrews and how we can use the same strategies here of showing that Jesus is better rather than poking holes in someone's worldview and being negative and critical. Positive apologetics that shows that the Christian truth is winsome and leads to persons flourishing is a much better way to help those who are dear to us who aren't convinced that the gospel is good news yet. 
To paraphrase Pascal, people hate religion because they think it might be true. The cure for this is to show them how attractive the gospel is so that they wish it was true and then show them that it is. So for believers and non-believers alike, we can all grow in appreciating just how wonderful the gospel is and how Jesus meets our deepest needs. And finally, we hold on. Verse 6, we are his house if we indeed hold firm to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original conviction firmly to the end. Our security is found in Christ and we need to hold on to that tightly. He has won it for us, but we are warned not to let it go. Last year for my dad's 70th birthday, we hired a houseboat and we went cruising on the Murray. And each night we had to tie the boat to a tree up on the shore. And it was all good fun until on one occasion we were preparing to move when we realised that a really thick branch had lodged itself between the railing as the boat had drifted during the night on the strong current and we couldn't move, it was stuck. And now a sensible person <laughs> would call the houseboat operators and get them to come with a chainsaw and chop off the branch. My dad, however, at that point was more headstrong than sensible and was absolutely determined to extricate the boat himself. There was no way that we were going to call for help. And so we all sprang into action. My sister was trying to lever the stuck branch with another branch kind of pushing it up. My mum was trying to keep the little ones from falling into the water. Um, my kids were trying to find branches to help uh, us twist the rope, um, which was tied around the tree. And my dad was trying to rev the motor to uh, pull the boat away, but not too much so that we wouldn't lose the boat. And my brother-in-law and myself, we were trying to hold the rope as tightly as we could while all the pressure was bearing on it. And our hands were burning and uh, our muscles were aching and we were holding onto it with all our might. And I don't remember how long it took. It seemed like forever. But gradually we made progress and the branch was dislodged. And it was an exercise in family bonding, I think, if nothing else. <laughs> we won't forget that trip. <laughs> That's how tightly we want to hold on to Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 puts it like this. Not that I have already obtained all this, referring to knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings, all have already arrived, arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward, in Christ Jesus. This, dear friends, is how we don't become wilderness people. Our confidence is in Christ 
and that we share in what he has won for us on the cross. And we hold tightly to that, knowing that Christ is holding on to us. And, brothers and sisters, this is not something that we do on our own. This is something that we do as a community, just like my family had to hold on to that rope together. Verse 13 says that we are to encourage one another daily. The language is not plural, it's singular. Oh, sorry, it is plural, not singular. Beg your pardon. As we turn up to church each Sunday, we encourage one another. And even if you feel that your presence is not that important, we look out for one another. We remind each other of the gospel. We share in the Lord's Supper together. We sing and we pray together. We support one another in hard times. We pray for one another and point one another to the hope that we have in Christ. Each day is a day to listen to God's voice and to hold on to his promises. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. Don't be like the wilderness people. We have come to share in Christ. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. Well, I know that I need God's help to do that, so would you join me in prayer as we pray for each other? Lord God, You are worthy of all our worship, all our love, but our hearts so easily go astray. Please, Lord, don't let us turn to borrowed light, but please help every single one of us here to hold on to you and to place our confidence in what we share in Christ. Help us to encourage one another and may each of us all together stand before you in worship when we see you face to face in your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.